from PRX. Hey, I'm Hanif Abdurraqib. I'm a writer and poet, and I'll be hosting this hour of Studio 360. Today on Studio 360... If I'm in charge, then I'm going to choose to put myself in a position where I'm at the center of goodness or comfort for ones. Why, even when the world seems grim, the indie rocker known as Vagabond creates music that offers a window into joy. Never meant to be you, never meant to be me, never meant to be us. Plus, it's the only book that I've ever finished and then started again. (laughs) Like, immediately. Writer Ashley C. Ford on encountering her first Toni Morrison novel. The more I read it, the more the puzzle (laughs) unlocked, and I I felt like the more I saw myself. That's ahead in Studio 360, right after this. Studio 360. Hey, I'm Hanif Abdurraqib, sitting in for Kurt Anderson this week. I'm a writer, a poet, and a proud Midwesterner living in Columbus, Ohio. My mother came home to her children, skin knee raw. She sat in the bathtub for hours and bled into the water. Ashley C. Ford was born and raised in Fort Wayne, Indiana, though she lives in Brooklyn now. She's known for her profiles of celebrities like Missy Elliott, Serena Williams, and Anne Hathaway in magazines like Marie Claire and Allure. She's also known for her personal essays, like this one from 2012, called What Burns in the Pit. While she stared into the space between herself and the walls, her body purged its sin, staining the off-white fiberglass. My brother and I sat in the hallways, making sure she wasn't giving up on her breathing, that she wasn't giving up on us. On the other side of the door, my mother was praying to water, repenting in spontaneous expulsions, oblivious to the world growing red around her. Toni Morrison is the most iconic black writer from the Midwest, but with each generation that cohort grows. One of my favorite contemporary writers from this region is Ashley C. Ford. The recent passing of Toni Morrison was on our minds when I talked to Ashley. I asked what her first exposure to Morrison's work was. Ooh, it was the bluest eye. I want to say I was 12. I got in trouble a lot in middle school for what I would call speaking up. What they called insubordination. And I would get sent to in-school suspension a lot where they kept running out of ways to punish me because I liked the things they used to punish kids in general. And so I started spending my detention time (laughs) in the library. And I picked up the bluest eye. And I think what drew me to it was that there was a black girl on the cover And it looked almost like when my mom would show me photos of her and her sisters when they were little. Plus, I never really saw black girls on the cover of books unless it was Jessie on the cover of the Babysitter's Club books, which she rarely got her own book or a cover, you know, or it had or it was like Addie, (laughs) the slave, you know, like and so I 
picked it up. I started reading it. And I kept reading it. It's the only book that I've ever finished and then started again. (laughs) Like, immediately. I couldn't really understand all of it, but the pieces that I was getting, it, it just felt like a puzzle I was unlocking. And... The more I read it, the more the puzzle (laughs) unlocked, and I I felt like the more I saw myself, and I loved that feeling and have never gotten over it. Could you describe the plot for people who haven't read it or can't remember? The Bluest Eye is essentially about a young black girl, Pecola, navigating colorism, abuse, uh, (laughs) and just trying to find a way to understand the world around her um, that unfortunately keeps leading back to herself as a root problem or issue with her interactions with other people. Is there a character or a moment of the story that you recall resonating with you when you first read it? (sighs) Yes, with Pecola and the cat. There's a scene where uh, she's crying and she's comforted by this cat. And I I don't want to really, like, say, like, too much around it, but something ends up happening to the cat. There's, like, it's a really um, sad moment. And it was, you know, I I think sadder than I thought the book could get um, or that I thought books could get at that time. And... There was something validating in that sadness because I knew that sadness. I had been that sad, and I felt like something was wrong with me for being the age I was and knowing the kind of sadness that I did that I was pretty sure no one else knew. And I read that scene, like I read that part, and I I just understood so deeply, like, the sadness of feeling finally loved or liked or comforted in the way that you need and then having that moment change or become twisted or um, become almost unbearably painful. It was a hard part to read, but it was also the part um, that stuck with me and that sticks with me still. When I think of the book, I I think of that moment. Beloved. So Beloved was my first Toni Morrison book. It came out in in 1987. I loved how, of course, um, Ohio showed up in it. Yes. It was the first (laughs) major book I'd read that where Ohio was a a setting, um, Mm -hmm. which makes me think about Toni Morrison in Midwestern identity and how kind of unafraid she was to populate her books with the Midwest and black Midwestern characters or black people situated Mm -hmm. or striving for the Midwest. So I'm thinking about other black Midwestern writers who um, perhaps have been a a guiding light for you. Do you have any that jump to mind outside of Toni Morrison? I mean, there are a couple. Mari Evans is absolutely in that list. Um, the great the great poet, Mari Evans. Yes. Mari Evans isn't just black Midwestern. She's Hoosier, right. baby. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> and remained a Hoosier, which does not surprise me. At 90, she was 97 when she passed away in Indianapolis. Yes. It's a very low-stress life. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very, very low-stress life uh, to live in Indiana. Um, and honestly, Roxanne Gay. Right. 
Roxanne was a way for me to see what was possible, whether I wanted it or not. Mm. You know? Yeah. Seeing a black woman write about her body out of the Midwest was just, I was blown away. I'm still blown away. There's just not enough (laughs) of us talking about just existing in the mid, if that makes sense, existing in the Midwest, like not being in conflict (laughs) with the Midwest, but just being there. And she was able to write about that in a way that made me feel like, like writing about it could mean something to someone else and like it could be useful. And so having people like Mari Evans and Tony and Roxanne write about it and talk about it, having Eve Ewing write about it and talking about it, like it it means a lot. And I, I love that their voices are part of that now because I need it. I still need it. <laughs> As a writer and creative yourself, um, how do you feel like you've done, not that this is your job, but how do you feel mm-hmm. like you've done in, a, in your attempts to archive and celebrate Black Midwestern life? I do think that you have to be proud of where you're from, right? And you have to rep where you're from a little bit. I'm... I'm very adamant when people try to write things down in bios or introduce me as a New York writer or a Brooklyn writer that I correct that. Absolutely. I love living in Brooklyn, but I'm a Hoosier girl through and through. Indiana baby. You know what I'm saying? Like I talk about it, but I talk about it because I know what that would have meant to me when I was 14. And so I think maybe in that way. I try to sort of like expand the visibility of black Midwesternness is that I really do try to encourage people that like this isn't why are you acting like you're ashamed that you're from Wisconsin? <laughs> no, let them get to know Wisconsin through you. Right. Talk about what it was like. Absolutely. I've had a, quite a few people be like, well, you know, Ashley, you're from Indiana, so you probably grew up around, like, all white people. And I'm like, no, I didn't. Oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> like, not at all. Actually, it was the opposite. <laughs> I did not grow up around all white people. My school system was something like, I mean, at its highest point, I think my school system was 90% black. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. no, I grew up in Indiana, and I grew up next to, I drove past cornfields every day, and all the people around me were black. So... You know, you don't know anything about my experience. And it's okay that you don't know, but I have to say something about it. Right. I got to talk about it and what it was like. Um, You've built uh, at least part of your stellar career by being exceptionally skilled at profiling just large pop culture figures or athletes or artists, Serena Williams, Missy Elliott, uh, of course, most recently Anne Hathaway, and making those people feel as though they're talking to a friend they've had for a very long time. How do you prepare for that? How do you get into that zone? How do you get people into that zone with you? I'm Midwestern, baby. <laughs> like, come on. You know how we do it. Circles back. It's like full circle. You know how we do it. In Midwest, you have to be able to talk to everybody because everybody's yeah. going to talk to you at some point. And so you learn how to talk to everybody. And the worst thing you could do, in, <laughs> at least where I grew up, the worst thing you could do is make somebody feel uncomfortable. <laughs> right. So I think my whole life, I've been a person who wanted people to feel comfortable in my presence. It was very, very, very important to me. Is there anyone you've been nervous to interview? Missy. Missy Elliott, yes. Missy Misdemeanor? (laughs) This is a Missy Elliott one-time experience. 
Yeah, that didn't come through at all in the piece. It felt like y'all were like kin, you know? I mean, it felt like that once she was sitting there and we were talking with one another. Um, But there was like a solid 15 minutes where I was sitting in the studio before she showed up. And I was not, I was not chill. I was, <laughs> I was not okay. I, I wasn't cool. I was, I was having a little bit of a mini freak out. She just means so much to me. She means so much to me. There's just so many people who feel this way about her. And the strange thing is she kind of doesn't know it. Like, she does a little bit, but not really. Circling back to books, you have a book coming. I do. Somebody's Daughter, a memoir. Uh, how difficult has memoir been? The, just the art of memoir is very, it's about excavation and about perhaps reconsideration of our past histories. Um, has that been difficult or joyful or somewhere at the intersection of those two things? Honey, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> <gasps> This isn't like Cher going on tour. This is like, you know, where she's always like, I'm never doing this again. And then she comes back. That's not what I'm talking comes about. Comes back. I'm yeah. not writing a memoir again. This has been the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. I've been through some tough shit. I ain't no, you know, like, I, I ain't no punk. <laughs> and this, at times, has broken me down to the brake pads. Like, this is the book that made me stop writing for a little while. <laughs> Wow. Like I just had to just stop writing altogether for a little while in order to sort of find my way back into it because it was I mean it was harrowing. I do not regret it, but yes, harrowing. It was really really tough for me. It is still tough for me. So before we go, there is one last very important thing I wanted to talk to you about. Yes. Let's go there, baby. Let's go there. Right now. Actually, let's not go there yet. If you can handle the wait, I promise I'll return to Ashley at the end of the show to find out her surprising obsession. But first... I don't care what nobody say. Biggie is one of the greatest... I can't even say rappers. I'll say MCs that ever lived. To all the ladies in the place with style and grace, allow me to lace these lyrical dishes in your bushes. The Notorious B.I.G.'s album Ready to Die released 25 years ago this week. That's next on Studio 360. Who's behind me? Mad question asking, passing, music blasting, but I just can't quit because one of these honeys Biggie got to creep. Studio 360. Hey, I'm Hanif Abdurraqib, sitting in for Kurt Anderson. On this week 25 years ago, the album Ready to Die by the notorious B.I.G., a.k.a. Biggie Smalls, was released. Biggie was larger than life in every sense, 6'2", and nearly 400 pounds. He was also one of the great storytellers in hip-hop history. My own introduction to Biggie was getting the cassette tape of Ready to Die from my oldest brother when I was a kid here in Columbus, Ohio. I would listen to it in my Sony Walkman on the bus to school, and then on the playground during recess, and then under the cover staying up way later than I should have been. This story about Biggie's Ready to Die begins with one of its producers. When I think of Notorious B.I.G., one of the first things that comes to my mind is the big tall dude 
that had my Acura leaning over when we used to ride around and he used to freestyle in my car to my beats. <laughs> I am Easy Moby, DJ, Brooklyn native, and I was a music producer for Ready to Die. I just started writing for The Source when somebody slipped me a copy of Ready to Die, and oh my God, I, it was an out-of-body experience, and I just had to talk to this guy. As I grab the put it to your headpiece, one in the chamber, the safety is off, release straight at your dog homes, I want to see cabbage, Biggie Small the Savage, doing your brain cells much damage, Teflon is the material. My name is Cheo Hodari Coker. I'm the author of Unbelievable, The Life, Death, and Afterlife of the Notorious B.I.G. I'm also the creator and former showrunner of Marvel's Luke Cage. But everything for me started as a hip-hop journalist. And one of the people that I had the opportunity to talk to extensively was the Notorious B.I.G., a.k.a. Christopher Wallace, a.k.a. Biggie Smalls. We first met, I want to say, two weeks after Ready to Die came out right in front of the stoop of 226 St. James in Clinton Hill, Brooklyn, where he grew up. I just remember that first day when I met him, he's standing on his stoop. We're having a conversation, and every car that was passing is playing a different song from Ready to Die. I mean, he couldn't have planned it like that. I mean, that, that, that's just how ubiquitous the record was in New York, but also, I think, around the country. Already, you had this kid from Brooklyn who was immediately like Athena full-born out of Zeus's head already a deity, so to speak. Honestly, you almost have to liken it to a debut novel. When you read Claude Brown's Man Child in the Promised Land, beyond telling his street stories and all the trouble that he got into before he eventually found himself and became a novelist, one big part of the book is the disconnect that he had with his parents' generation who just could not understand him. Biggie encompasses that entire book in one line. Remember back in the days, our parents used to take care of us. Look at them now. They scared of us. Calling the city for help because they can't maintain. Things done change. With that song, Things Done Change, he's talking about the innocence of youth and the games that people would play as kids in the street. And then, boom, flash forward to 93, people are getting killed. Either you're slaying crack rock or you got a wicked jump shot. He's writing a very political, very topical rhyme about urban despair. Damn, what happened to the summertime cookouts? Every time I turn around, I'm getting took out. My mama got cancer in the breast. Don't ask me why I'm motherfucking stressed. Things done change. Ready to Die is actually supposed to be a story. I'm Somia Krishnamurthy. I'm a music journalist. When you listen to the album top to bottom, it's almost like you're watching a movie. It goes from him being born. Superfly in the background, meaning that he was born in 72. By the time Rapper's Delight comes out, meaning by 79, you know, the family unit's broken up. Now what you hear is not a test. Flash into the robbery scene on the train. You're really seeing a coming-of-age story of this young man, Christopher Wallace, from his birth to his death and everything in between. I got big plans. Big plans. (laughs) First of all, his process for writing is strange. The pen and the pad is laying there, but he's not really writing anything down. He did a lot of rocking back and forth. 
both hands clasped together and like circling, twiddling his thumbs. I was like, what is this dude doing? He would describe just being on the corner selling drugs and you're outside on your feet for hours freezing and you're basically trying to write but you don't have times to actually have a notepad out and just writing stuff in your head. In the session for Gimme the Loot, he did that and he ordered food and he had visitors. People was coming by to see him and I was like, I want this guy to work. <laughs> like, what is going on? And then hours later, then he just jumped up. He was like, all right, I'm ready. In my mind, I was like, you ready for what? Like, you sat around, we wasted hours all day. And he went in the booth and bong. My man Imp left a in a at my crib. Turned himself in, he had to do a bid. A one to three, he be home the end of 93. I'm ready to get this paper, G. You with me? Right? My pockets looking kind of tight. And I'm stressed. Yo, Biggie, let me get the vest. No need for that. Just grab the... When he was doing what he was doing, creating the two characters, one with the higher voice, one with a lower voice, and them answering each other, call and answer. That was creative, you know? I mean, a lot of thought. He was putting a lot of thought into what he was doing. Word the mother, I'm dangerous. Crazier than a bag of angel dust. When I bust my mother, take dirt naps. I'm all that and a dime sack. Where the paper at? When you listen to Biggie do it, it sounds like it's somebody else. Give me the loop, give me the loop. Just shows you just how clever he is. And then when he came out of the booth, he like kind of looked at me through a side eye. He said, I told you. <laughs> and I was sitting and I was giving him the side eye, just looking at, her, at him like, wow, look at this dude. <laughs> I listen to a beat, I go in and I just spit it off the dome, you know, essentially freestyle it. And the impact that that's had on subsequent generations is now every rapper wants to do that. Who the hell is this? Page of me at 546 in the morning, crack the dawn and now I'm yawning. Wipe the cold out my eye. See who's this page of me and why. Ready to Die was the first official full-length studio release from Bad Boy Records. It was really a brand new label put on the back of this young 23-year-old named Sean Puffy Combs. Puffy was incredibly smart about branding and about how to sell this album to the masses at large. And so Big's first singles were basic R&B records flipped with hip-hop edge. Juicy is based on the classic Entume song, Juicy Fruit. The original track's funky as it is. It's soft, I mean, from a hip-hop standpoint. It's just the last thing that you would ever expect a Timbaland Boots, Philly Blunt smoking gangster rapper to be rapping over. But Puffy already knew that this pop single is going to basically open all these doors in terms of radio play. It was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine. Something pepper and heavy D up in the limousine. Hanging pictures on my wall. Every Saturday, rap attack Mr. Magic Molly Mall. Juicy is probably my least favorite Biggie song. But then at the same time, I definitely appreciate from a storytelling standpoint. It's just got all these different hallmarks of pulling your fans in, that they're remembering their childhoods while listening to your record. Juicy is such a hip-hop classic. It's almost this rite of passage. For you to be a fan of hip-hop, you have to be able to rap at least a few bars of Juicy. I'm blowing up like you thought I would. Call a crib, same number, same hood. It's all good. 
It's really this song that's about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, going from rags to riches. And we were able to see that happen for Biggie in real time. This guy who was discovered in the unsigned hype section of The Source to now becoming the face of the magazine. I made the change from a common thief to up close and personal with Robin Leach. Yeah. And I'm far from cheap. I smoke soap with my peeps all day. Spread love, it's the Brooklyn way. The Moet and Alize keep me pissy. Girls used to diss me. Now they write letters because they miss me. I never thought it could happen. This rapping When Puffy talks about Bad Boy, it's not just a label, it's a cultural movement. Music, fashion, lifestyle. Puffy was able to kind of package this idea of ghetto fabulous. What did that mean for young people, especially people of color, to aspire towards wearing the hottest clothes, being in the coolest parties, really being cultural trendsetters. You see it especially in the music video for Big Papa. To all the ladies in the place with style and grace, allow me to lace these lyrical dishes in your bushes. In my opinion, Big Papa was the precursor to the personality, the voice, this whole poise, everything that he would use on the next album. What Puffy did with Big Papa was he leaned into the West Coast sound because he already was saying to the West Coast, I have an East Coast artist, but I'm going to put him over a smooth kind of track that's going to play right into the hip-hop fans from Los Angeles and Oakland. The big singles, Juicy, Big Papa, which are the party anthems, the fun songs, that's really what drew people in. But when you hit play on Ready to Die, it's a much darker piece of work. And the bargain that both Big and Puff made with each other is that Puffy was always going to make those moves that were going to guarantee the largest possible audience. Big was always about, okay, that's all well and good, but I have to make songs for my true fan base. It's much darker fare than a lot of people expected. There's a criminal element. You hear about mental illness, suicidal thoughts. It really shows that at a young age, he was a very complex person. By the time you get to suicidal thoughts and the character kills himself, which was a huge kind of shock to anybody listening to the record. You're like, whoa. Biggie, in terms of content, was the hardest thing I had ever worked with. They used to laugh at me. They used to make fun of me because, you know, every time I felt like Biggie might have been, like, going over the edge or pushing the envelope too far, I'd be like, yo, what's up, man? What's going on? Why would he? And they would be falling out on the chair over there laughing, cracking up. They'd be like, yo, Mo, chill, man. Why are you so sensitive? (laughs) I was like, I didn't want the album to get pulled off shelves. He was able to take very dark themes and oftentimes present them in such a palatable and even fun way. Big was charming, you know? 
there's a way that he rhymes. He doesn't soften the content because, I mean, the record itself is pornographic. But it's just the way that he says it that you understand how he could talk anybody into anything. It's like, get ready to go in the um, booth and I'm going to do this this interlude with me and Kim. Some of those kind of booths, they have like wood doors that will fold in and close so you can't see in. So he had the wooden doors folded in and then the moaning started and the... <laughs> we was all in the control room like, yo, what is going on in there? Oreo cookie eating, pickle juice drinking, chicken gristle eating, V8 juice drinking, slim fast blended. To this day, I don't know if it was real or not. All I know is I heard the sounds of ecstasy and... One thing about hip-hop is it's very competitive. Since the beginning, it's always been about who's the best rapper, who's going to be the most popular, who's the one that all the girls like more. The East Coast-West Coast War of the 90s really surrounded Biggie on the East Coast and Tupac on the West Coast. When Ready to Die came out, though, a new king was crowned in the East. Now, we all kind of know the stories that after Tupac was shot at Quad Studios in New York City in 1994, he felt that Biggie was behind it, and that kind of started the snowball effect of the back and forth between the two MCs. Shortly after midnight, 12.25 a.m. on Wednesday morning, Tupac Shakur was shot five times in the lobby of this Manhattan building. Shakur is reported in serious but stable condition at Bellevue Hospital. If there's any one song that, in my opinion, on Ready to Die, that could have contributed to that East Coast, West Coast war thing. I'd say it would have to have been Who Shot You? Who shot you? Separate the weak from the obsolete. Hard to creep them Brooklyn streets. It's all all that bickering beef. I can hear sweat trickling down your cheek. Your heartbeat sound like... At the time, Big claims that it was a lyric that was already written. But um, it's just so coincidental at that time. Tupac gets shot. Oh, my goodness. Sometimes people now say, yeah, when Big passed. Big didn't pass. He didn't have cancer. He didn't die in a skiing accident. He was murdered. It's like a sad, numbing refrain heard too often. Another gangster rapper gunned down. This time, 24-year-old notorious B.I.G., a.k.a. Biggie Smalls, killed in an apparent drive-by shooting outside a Los Angeles party early Sunday. Same thing with Tupac. You know, it isn't even like a plane crash like, you know, that killed um, Richie Valens and the Big Bopper. These two giants were taken from us. I was just like, what happened? It was never the same. Despite the fact that there's kind of been like a whole cottage industry of books and movies and things that have gotten so deep into their murders and, you know, it kind of becomes almost like the JFK Dealey Plaza of hip hop. Sometimes people have really forgotten why we loved them and loved their music in the first place. Live from Bedford Stuyvesant, the liveest one, representing BK to the fullest. Big took his community with him. I mean, he was always shouting out Brooklyn. He was always shouting out Bed-Stuy. And those people that were closest to him, you know, basically went along for the ride. And he was showing them a different way other than selling drugs, other than death. But there are times when I just feel like 
would he still be alive if he actually sold drugs instead of rapping about a lifestyle that he left behind? I don't care what nobody say. Biggie is one of the greatest, I can't even say rappers, I'll say MCs that ever lived. The stuff that Biggie's talking about, the heartbreak, the despair, really questioning the meaning of life as a young 20-something, those are the same things people are going through today. And he was able to put it in a way that's timeless. And I think that's the reason why this album is such an undisputed classic. It's a timeless piece as far as I'm concerned. I put it up there with some of the greatest hip-hop albums of all time. And I'm so grateful to be able to say that I was a part of that. That was the DJ and music producer Easy Moby talking about Ready to Die, the album by the Notorious B.I.G. that was released this week back in 1994. We also heard from Cheo Hodari Coker and Somia Krishnamurthy. That piece was produced by Jenny Cataldo for BMP Audio. Coming up... It has to have a purpose that feels bigger than me. The indie artist Vagabond on what motivates her. In order for me to justify doing all this stuff that feels a little masturbatory. I talk with Vagabond about her upcoming album. That's next on Studio 360. I've been hiding in the smaller Studio 360. Hey, I'm Hanif Abdurraqib sitting in for Kurt Anderson this week. And among the other hats I wear, writer, poet, I'm also a music critic. And something I heard that really moved me a few years ago is the album Infinite Worlds by an artist called Vagabond. Vagabond is a stage name for Leticia Tomko, an indie rock innovator and multi-instrumentalist based in Brooklyn. Infinite Worlds was her first album, and when it came out in 2017, it received a flood of critical acclaim. And this October, the 26-year-old will be releasing her second album. Tomko was born in Cameroon. When she was 13, an age that can be tumultuous in the most stable of circumstances, she was uprooted when her family moved to Harlem. In that time frame of being a teenager where you feel so uneasy in your body to then be shifted into a whole different part of the world, it was anxiety-inducing. When I first moved here, I had a buzz cut, and I remember kids just not understanding 
if I was a boy or a girl or like where I came from or why I looked like that. What did you turn to for comfort, if anything? Is kind of is that where you found music or were you already invested in music before the move? My grandmother was a choir director in Cameroon, so I already loved music and I would always be around music, but in the context of like church and choir. But when I moved to the U.S., it was mostly like listening to Mariah Carey CDs and Whitney Houston CDs and the radio and and Usher CDs, Alicia Keys. And that's all I would do. I would like very much like stare out of the window and like play those CDs. What was the Mariah Carey album that was like your Mariah Carey album? (laughs) This is going to tell my age, but it was like obsessed with me era like what was it called like, oh, it was like an yeah. equ- like a math equation um oh yeah it was like e equals, e MC, equals MC, squared. <laughs> mc squared yes which in retrospect is not maybe the best album title of her career yeah it's incredible that that was my that was my album right there And that's like more of the recent stuff. It was after that that I discovered like Heartbreaker era and loved that too. But that was the album that I was obsessed with. Everyone I feel like has a Mariah entry period or everyone had a Mariah entry period. I imagine that's harder now. Um, right. Though she came out with an album recently. Did you listen to the latest Mariah album? Oh yeah, I love that album. Where do I go from here? I think it's really good and I mean it's no shade but like it seems more vocally accessible for like um right oh that's such a gentle way to put that (laughs) yeah because like you know it's still Mariah but like I'm like oh I can sing Mariah it's like a thing A lot has been made of you kind of breaking stereotypes in the indie rock space. Mm -hmm. Is that something you think about? Is that kind of a path you intend to be on? Or are you just kind of here creating with the tools you have? I mean, I would be lying if I said I didn't think or notice about how I was often the only black women in these spaces or one of two. I touch on on my record, Vagabond, that's coming out, just of like being really freaked out by like gatekeeper culture and realizing that a lot of the indie rock world is that way and especially for people who look like me for black girls or black men even like black people um and it's really important for me that with every little tiny bit of power that I acquire through people thinking my music is good it's like it's in it's in an attempt to keep the door open for the rest of us to come behind me because Uh, For me, it has to have a purpose that feels bigger than me in order for me to justify doing all this stuff that feels a little masturbatory. Right. Yeah. I mean, we obviously lost Toni Morrison recently. And in talking about Toni Morrison, the thing that so stood out to me was her relentless commitment to making sure she wasn't pulling the ladder up behind her, so to speak. Yes. Kind of erasing these ideas of scarcity and making room for other people. So it's really great to hear you say that. And I think that's a a major part of the work beyond whatever it is we create, also holding the door open for other folks to create and showing them the path to do it. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the only way we're going to we're going to make it. So you have a new album is a your self-titled album. Mm. 
they you go with the self-titled for the second album? Was it kind of like a reintroduction type of idea? It was more of like there are so many discoveries of self on this album. You know, even going from Infinite Worlds where I wasn't on the cover, and this one where I like really had a full idea of how I wanted to be on the cover and what I wanted to to display and really finding confidence in my voice through this album like I was scared of my voice last time around now I'm fully in it and all its quirks and I produced the entire record I um performed 97% of the instruments except for strings on the album and so it felt like the right thing to call it it felt aligned with the process of making this album Never meant to be you, never meant to be me, never meant to be us Never meant for all of this, never meant for you to love, never meant for you to trust So I'll take my time next time, and I'll do it right What I loved about listening to the album was that it did give off a kind of comforting vibe throughout what was it like to make music of comfort in in uncomfortable times Mm. um it was good i was growing really weary of black sadness and seeing how it's consumed more importantly um not so much that it exists but how our stories get told and i feel like black joy is is a radical thing every time i walk down the street and i see a like a black person smiling, I'm happy um, because it feels like that in and of itself is not as simple as it can seem to some other people. And so this whole sonic landscape of this album is like, well, if I'm in charge, then I'm going to choose to put myself in a position where like I'm at the center of goodness or comfort for ones, you know. I'm fortunate enough to have the space. How do I want to dress my space up in a way that makes me feel supported and not hopeless? So there's one influence in particular I was excited to talk to you about. The guitarist Ali Torre, Mm -hmm. who passed away in 2006, but Mm -hmm. was an African blues musician from Mali, really, I think, is most known for his distinct guitar work, um, Particularly, I remember being young and hearing the album The River, which was present in my house. Oh, I love that. But what's your Torre touchpoint? The album Savan means so much to me. The way that Africans all over play guitar is so specific and it's so beautiful and it feels so rooted in me that when I picked up a guitar, I realized that like those are the things that I was drawn to because that's the first introduction to guitar that I had and it felt cool to finally identify with my culture in this way because I think there was a long time of living in America where no one around me was like me. Um, There was this disconnect between me and my culture that I knew so well and so this is kind of coming back to it and saying yes actually this is the music I love, this is the music I first listened to when I discovered I loved music and 
this is what my body wants to do and this is what my fingers want to do when I touch a guitar. Leticia, thank you so much for speaking with me. It's been a pleasure. I hope to catch you out on tour as you promote this wonderful new album. Thanks for having me. It was good to talk to you. Leticia Tomko's new album, Vagabond, is out October 18th. Music of Ali Farkatore is an obsession of Leticia Tomko's. But let's return to my interview with Ashley C. Ford, who is about to explain her obsession. Before we go, there is one last very important thing I wanted to talk to you about. Yes. <laughs> let's go there, baby. Let's go there. The, right now. The king of movie soundtracks. Mr. Kenny Loggins. The sultan of soundtracks, okay? <laughs> the king of yacht rock. Yes, you, Kenny Loggins. You are maybe the biggest Kenny Loggins fan I know. Thank you. I hear that when you were at Ball State, you listened to Highway to the Danger Zone every morning before class your first year. Oh, my God. Wait, how did you know that? <laughs> I did. <laughs> Oh, my God, I did. My roommate was like, are you serious? But I did. I listened to it every morning on my way to class. To be fair, I started it the first semester because my first class was always at 8 a.m. And I really needed to, like, pump myself up to get there on time. And, I mean, Kenny just works. What about Kenny Loggins, like, really gets you? I'm going to be honest, okay? It's emotional and it's lyrical. Um, (laughs) But... I started listening to Kenny Loggins because a teacher gave me a Kenny Loggins tape because I was scared of the dark. And him and his wife had been playing this tape for their (laughs) much younger child um, called Return to Pooh Corner, which was a tape of lullabies that Kenny Loggins did. And it's not just lullabies, like regular lullabies. It's like he covers some popular songs and turns them into lullabies, like St. Judy's Comet. Long come see St. Judy's Comet Roam across the sky Leave a spray diamonds in its wake John Lennon's Love Love is wanted The Rainbow Connection. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? And what's on the other side? What was really hard for me in middle school, and even a little bit before that, was this really, really intense collision of my childhood innocence and love of whimsy and all of those things and puberty, (laughs) like my body. Like those things just right into each other. And I wasn't ready to let go of childhood. I wasn't ready to not be a little girl or like be somebody's little girl. You know, like I, I didn't want that. And so my, I feel like my body was betraying me and then everything became scary. The life became scary. The night became scary. The dark became scary. And I was falling asleep in the class and the teacher gave me this tape because his kid could sleep in the dark now, okay? Yeah, she was five and she got it together and she was done. And I needed the tape. Why 
I was listening to this tape every night. I just realized, like, I really love this guy's voice. And then his songs started coming on the radio. In Fort Wayne, there was 97.3 WMEE, and it's the soft rock station. And I would turn it there, and every once in a while, I would hear a Kenny Loggins song, and I'd be like, oh, my gosh. Whenever I call you friend. I asked my teacher if he had more Kenny Loggins music, and of course he did. He was like a 50-year-old Mormon. And he gave me all of this Kenny Loggins music to go home to and listen to. I didn't have my own CD player at the time. I had to listen to it on this, like, old computer in our kitchen. And I would just play it out loud in the house. I loved it so much, and it didn't bother anybody in the house to where they made me turn it off. And so I listened to it all the time, and it just never stopped. Most music at some point, I'm like, okay, I'm done with that art. Like, I've been listening to that album. I'm done with it. It never stopped. I listened to Kenny Loggins all the time. That was Ashley C. Ford rhapsodizing about Kenny Loggins. By the way, that memoir Ashley mentioned, the one that nearly did her in, it's called Somebody's Daughter, and it's coming out in 2021. Keep an eye out for it. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, in association with Slate. The production team is Jocelyn Gonzalez, Andrew Adam Newman, Sandra Lopez Monsalves, Evan Chung, Lauren Hansen, Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders, Tommy Bazarian, Morgan Flannery, Kurt Anderson. And I'm Hanif Abdurraqib. It has been a blast and an honor filling in for Kurt Anderson this week. To find more of my writing, you can check out my website, abdurraqib.com. And you can also pick up my new collection of poetry, A Fortune for Your Disaster. Thanks for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, how Hannah Gatsby is rewriting the rules of comedy. But if one person can kill comedy, comedy can't be that robust. It's in an iron lung. I just pulled the plug. I'm Hari Kundabolu, comedian and South Asian American sex symbol, guest hosting for Kurt Anderson. Join me next time on Studio 360.